We'll kick those tires and start that perpetually virtually fake fire due to rising gas prices, inflation, and all the other things going on in the world. I am now broadcasting from the safety of my San Diego bunker. And with me today is a guest who definitely needs an introduction. I find his voice to be particularly soothing, hearkening back to the sirens of old that would lure sailors to their demise. Um, and he, you know, it's interesting, he has his Estonian surname, Beguiles, actually, a, a keen wit, a prolific author, recipient of multiple awards. He is a host, much to the chagrin of probably a majority of the nation. And uh, he is also uh, a screenwriter, which is also something that I think a lot of people don't actually understand about this gentleman. So he's witty, he's fun, and I think he's about to embark on perhaps the greatest adventure and accolade he will ever garner, which is, of course, a presence on this show, you will notice that he has a bookcase for a background, whereas I have a clearly obfuscated ceiling fan and some sort of red object hanging in the corner. For you listeners and the audio only, these are the things you miss when you don't watch. So without further ado, please welcome to the program, Andrew Clavin. I'm waiting for the applause now. Oh, did we, can we get a laugh track? We, that's a, oh, man. So, that's I, I, just, I would like to point out, by the way, that luring sailors to their death is my hobby. That is oh. something I do in my, in my off hours. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Well, I was about to say, because you are, I think you, you, you're based, you go between Tennessee and I think D.C. as well, right? So is it, are there a lot of sailors coming down the Potomac these days or the Mississippi? <laughs> you know, I thought sirens are more of a saltwater thing, right? Yeah, no, I'm on the Potomac and they are all kinds of crew people going by and occasional cruise ships and everything. I lure them all. I just, my song is irresistible. <laughs> well, Andrew Claven, maritime disaster instigator. So as a future book there. Well, um, Andrew, I uh, so appreciate you being here. We actually, it, this is actually a really cool um, opportunity. I was introduced to uh, some of your videos, some of which I can't unsee, uh, years and years ago, back in the original days of YouTube. But um, it's funny. I will admit, I... Um, I really came to like your writing uh, recently just because I started reading. I, I had no idea you were such a prolific screenwriter and uh, an author, which it, it's, I, I always knew you was like the guy from the On the Culture YouTube videos. And I thought, oh, same guy. Interesting. But um, a very dear friend of mine and a, a mentor of mine passed away uh, on last Sunday, and he was your biggest fan and would send stuff oh, all sure. the time. And uh, he'd be so proud uh, watching right now. I mean, he loves, he was a really just one of those classic Renaissance men who just like read everything, questioned everything, you know, couldn't subscribe to just one, one religious faith because he found, you know, it, it's funny, there's a contradictory nature there, but he found such beauty in the unknowableness of it. Like there's a reverence of like, I'm a human. I can't truly probably understand everything that's going on. Just a, but a wonderfully Socratic teacher. And he was just such a, he's like, this is one of the voices. And he loved to listen to people on both sides of the aisle. And he's like, this is a man I deeply respect and you need to watch his videos. Or I'm not going to buy you dinner. Um, and so I was actually forced to consume your content under uh, threat of <laughs> starvation. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but uh, he'd be so proud watching now. So Ken, I love you, man. I miss you. And uh, I'm interviewing Andrew Clavin. It took, nine years but uh here we are you know so is you have a lot of you have a lot of fans and apparently when uh, the next level you got some fans up there too so that's that's the important level yeah that's right so uh, there's so many places to start here but I, I guess we should start with the obvious one uh, recently on this program was a uh, sort of lowercase elohim you know a, a god of uh, of men not so much a truly divine creature but um i had accused jeremy boring of self proclaimed deification which he said is actually not the case at all that a one andrew clavin had ordained him a divine creature can you address these salacious rumors that you are going around ordaining <laughs> other men as as gods <laughs> among us look lowercase gods but uh, yeah no guilty 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 uh you know i think uh, one of one of my my few uh, genuine talents is i am i have a really uh powerful ability to discern talent in other people. And uh, I could see pretty uh, close, pretty quickly when Jeremy started The Daily Wire uh, that this thing was going to work, and it was going to work because he was thinking it through in a way that is quite peculiar to him. He has a very, he's very insightful about how businesses work and how media works and all this. And I could see all of that. And so I, I deemed him the God King. And, and he has rightly said, 
that it's both uh, a praise and a way of telling the people around us because we were hiring all these young kids who don't actually believe there's such a thing as a boss, you know. <laughs> I, did, I did on the one hand to, to give him his proper uh, due in the, in the business. And he, I heard him say on your show that it was also a rebuke. That's not true. It's not a rebuke <laughs> at all. It is it is a friendly uh, wor- word to the wise from an elder. <laughs> remember, remember, thou art mortal and must die. You know that uh, that it was uh, it was meant to be a joke and to keep him laughing. And I think it has actually. That's true. He did say that you often sort of like a laxative insert. Uh, truth into compliments <laughs> and that uh, it is just never known, you know, what is actually Andrew Clavin saying. And I, I actually think you're onto something there. Have you considered a Clavin line of greeting cards um, that you are mortal and all will perish? I, I really feel like that could be a great birthday card, you know, that you could, you could offer to people. <laughs> I am, I am that cheery guy, you know, <laughs> people that, yes, it is. It is nice when you succeed in something, but it all disappears. And, uh, now I do have to ask, since you sort of you have you have said that you have this sort of spider sense uh, ability to detect talent. I'm really curious. Are you detecting anything at all right now? Uh, uh, not a thing. That's okay, just an absolute flatline. Yeah, That's right. Uh, That's right. Well, you know, I think 5G <laughs> is an issue. We must. It must not be coming through clear enough. Um, well, all right. So you do you do take ownership of that. So it is important to listeners because I would tease Jeremy about this for a long time. But the the lowercase God King was not. Uh, self-proclaimed because I, I self-proclaimed apostles are my least favorite uh, apostles and yeah they, they usually don't work uh you know yeah I mean Jeremy's just not clever enough to come up with that I'm sorry <laughs> good well there you go <laughs> now so uh, let's let's dive into the AK origin story because every superhero or in this case tragic hero has to have uh you know an interesting uh early years and uh, just skipping around a little bit. So uh, I, I love you came to faith much later in life, uh, which I think is so uh, interesting. And uh, it, and you you grew up, it sounds like from listening to one of your videos where you had a, um, a pretty tumultuous relationship uh, with your father, at least it sounded like that you said that he would actually come in and uh, try and antagonize and disrupt anything that you were doing uh, to succeed. And, I, and I'm going, that's that must have been brutal. It, you know, it was it was quite terrible. It was extra terrible because he was not a bad person. Uh, he was not a brute. He was not somebody who was always uh, trying to destroy everything openly or attack you. Uh, but he he was you know he had he had problems and he extended those problems. And there was something about me. I have three brothers. So we were a four brother family. My my childhood was one long fist fight. Uh, it was like the last reel of a John Wayne movie. Like people flying through doors and you know just absolute chaos all the time. And there was something about me specifically uh, that that just didn't sit right with my father. Um, something about my aspirations, something about my stubbornness, probably. Uh, and we just were in a clash of wills. And the, the thing that was so difficult about it was that he was not um, an evil person. I mean, I hmm. could see both that he was a, a good guy and a, a man of goodwill and that he was not my friend, that hmm. there was something about me that he wanted gone. And it was the essential part of me and the thing that was that I knew was what I was here for. And so at some even at a child's level. And I remember saying to myself very at a very young age, this man is not your friend. His Hmm. advice is not good. Uh, His actions are are meant to hurt you. He doesn't mean to hurt you, but his actions are meant to hurt you. And that's yeah, that was very, very disturbing. I mean, it was the source of a lot of my um, youthful uh, mental problems. Uh, that I that I loved him. He was my dad, and uh, you know I had adopted, as we all do, uh, some of his values. But there were poison pills in the value, and and you know it's, I I've, I've known a lot of people who were abused or whose parents were alcoholics uh, or had some kind of cata- catastrophic upbringing, and I didn't have that, and that in some ways made it more dangerous because it seemed like I was growing up. It, it really did seem like I was growing up in this leave it to Beaver uh, kind of um, perfect suburban world. Mm-hmm. But it was all um, it was all kind of false and, and misleading. And I took a lot of work. I, I, I think I lost 10 years of my life uh, just getting past that. Wow. Was there ever any uh, later in life, any reconciliation or any sort of restoration in that relationship? Well, in the in the comic tragic way of things, uh, we, we made a separate piece. We, we became uh, peaceable with one another for the most part. Uh, we just didn't talk about anything of import. We just didn't have any real conversations. We talked about computers. We talked about movies. So you became uh, men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
<laughs> you you finally you ushered into the right hood the frightful passage of being a man, right? What, and then as you get older, it becomes weather, you know, yeah, gas prices exactly. and things like that. <laughs> it was a very careful relationship in that way. What the comical part of it, or the comic tragical part of it, is that when I realized that uh, I had become a Christian uh, almost without knowing it, um, I realized too that that was going to end. Uh, the comedy between us that was going to end the, the kindness because he he told me many in my childhood that he would disown me if i ever converted from judaism which i didn't believe in in the first place and uh he it was very important to him that that not happen and when i saw that it was happening almost against really against my will uh, i knew i was going to have to break it to him and that it was going to explode this carefully constructed uh pleasantness between us and uh, just as I was on the verge of breaking it to him, he uh, came down with his final illness. And um, and so I I had to have a conversation with myself uh, in which I ultimately decided not to tell him because I thought it would break his heart, on, basically break his heart on his deathbed. Mm. And I thought, uh, you know, I can't, I can't do that. That doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. It's not gonna, it's not gonna suddenly convert him. It's not gonna, uh, you know, reconcile us in any real way. And so, uh, and so I never told him and he never knew. Wow, man, that yeah. is that is tragically, I guess, in the Shakespearean sense. Um, that's uh, yeah. that must have been, yeah. It's so I'm curious too. Like, so you you were a secular, a cultural, basically a cultural Jew. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it was important to my father that we learn all the rites and rituals, and that we go to Hebrew school and be bar mitzvah and all of that. But uh, my my mother was a stone atheist. My father. I, I, I always suspected my father had some belief in God in that sort of bargaining way that people have, you know, God, please don't let me, you know, get sick and or fail or whatever. Um, but there was no God in our house. You know, there was no praying. There was no discussion of what God wanted from you. There was, it just didn't exist, you know, as, as an actual God just didn't exist in our house as a real entity. And so the whole thing was just empty to me. And when I uh, Jews get angry at me for converting and I say to them, you know, I was never really a Jew because I the whole structure was an empty it was a beautiful cathedral but it was an empty house there was nobody there was nobody home uh and so um you know i've told this story many times but when i was bar mitzvah i was against my will very much against my will uh, and i felt that i was a a, a liar for saying now i'm part of this religion and uh, i was given all these i grew up in a very nice neighborhood and i was given all these expensive gifts uh, jewelry and silver and gold and savings bonds after about six months i just thought i i can't stand this it's it, it's accusing me from my little leather box that i kept it in and i snuck out one night and i stuffed it in the trash and threw away uh, what must have been thousands of dollars um because i just couldn't bear to be accused by it and that was supposed to be my goodbye to religion that was basically i never wanted to feel that way again Oh man, that sounds that, that sounds very um, Edgar Allan but like uh, Telltale Heart. Like, was it just you know you wake up in the middle of the night and the box would just be beating and be like, Andrews, <laughs> <laughs> you lie, you lie. It calls it calls to you, man. Well, it's funny too. A lot of people got mad at you for converting. They probably they saw how you turned out now, and now they're like, you know what? That's fine. You just go that way, right? So you're probably gonna get <laughs> exactly. disowned. Good good riddance. It's gonna come. It's gonna come full circle. Um, what were we, as, so I, I always love seeing how people end up doing what they do. Was there this proclivity for the gift of gab and writing at a young age? Did you? I know you mentioned that you joked that you were one of the few that could have actually failed out of Hebrew school, which is almost should be impossible uh, uh, for someone with your background. But have you? Did you excel in you know communication and writing and all the things that you know that Jeremy would say you don't excel in now, but you do? Like you know, would you, would you, did you show any signs of becoming the Clavin that we know today? I was a a really good writer from a young age, and uh, I was such a bad student. Uh, I didn't want to study at all. I hated all authority, and uh, I didn't really want to. I really did not study until I got out of college. That's when I began my education. Um, but I wrote my way through college, and I wrote my way through school because I could write so well that people didn't really realize that I had no idea what I was talking about. And uh, I remember, I mean, the pinnacle of my 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 greatest academic achievement was writing a a, a paper on a Blake poem without Blake was a, both a poet and an artist and engraver. 
and I had no idea. They just told us the title and said we should comment on it. I had no idea what I was writing about, a poem or an engraving. So I had to constantly say, say, you know, this work, if work is the word I want, you know, I just got, got this whole thing. And I got I think I got a B minus on this on this paper. Uh, and so I really that was really the story of my education. And it was only afterward, at the very end of my education, when I realized that I had made a terrible mistake. Uh, that I set about the very dogged pursuit of reading every single book uh, that I had bought in college, which then became reading every book. I mean, Knowles is always joking. I've read all the books. And it, I was just this dogged pursuit. And I vowed to myself I would never again comment on a book I hadn't read. Uh, I would never comment on a movie I hadn't seen. And I was, that was just my rule from that point on. So I had to see and read everything. Wow. That's funny. I drew, we did a random lottery in my uh, senior year lit class in high school, and I drew William Blake, uh, who I'm assuming we're talking about the same individual. <laughs> That's the sh short end of the state. Yeah. I was going to say, because yeah. I remember my teacher was like, I showed her, she was like, oh, have fun with that one. And then you see a picture of the guy, is like, hair is very sort of like um, um, Jimmy Neutron, you know, just a flow. And he's just like, I'm like, that guy, he was nuts. You know, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But uh, I mean, this I have, and she's like, "What do you think he means?" And I was like, "You're the teacher. You tell me. What, why don't you just save me the trouble here? Because I have no idea what this guy is saying right now." But uh, I, uh, I'm curious. What was it like? Uh, what years were you at Berkeley? And what was it like? Were there people still? Because I visited a few times, and there did appear to be people living in trees there, uh, yes, sort of Swiss they, Family Robinson style. Well, I went there for the riots. You know, I thought like I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to college. I hated school. And so I didn't want to go anywhere. And the only college I applied to was the University of California, Berkeley, because I thought there would be riots. I thought this would be really exciting. It was kind of where history was taking place. But by the time I got there in the way of these things, you know, the riots were over uh, and it was just a, a criminal. It was just a place full of criminals, essentially, and homeless people and, and beggars and pot smokers. And it's all cool that. to see but how it's changed me, entirely but, now. So. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, what, 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 what happened what, what happened, though, was that I, I went to school for a year. I simply couldn't bear it. And I was on the verge of a, a breakdown. I was fantastically depressed. And so I, I dropped out and I got a job as a, a radio reporter in, in Berkeley. And Patty Hearst was kidnapped. Now, people don't remember this, but at the time, that was the crime of the decade. This was the daughter of the newspaper, uh, you know, mogul. And she was kidnapped from around the corner from me. And I wound up at 19 years old covering the biggest story in the country and, and, and wrestling with, you know, CBS reporters and NBC reporters to get a place at the table and all this stuff. So I really got that was my experience of Berkeley was the Patty Hearst kidnapping. It was not which was by this radical gang called the SLA who wound up being killed uh, by police in a gunfight in L.A. Uh, shortly thereafter. And so uh, and so that was my experience. I didn't get the radical experience of riots and protests and and all that. Uh, what I got was the first whiff of this crazy theory stuff that was just rising into academia and the Patty Hearst case. Now, did you uh, while you were at Berkeley, because uh, I know I, I went to USC, which has inculcated in me a deep hatred of Berkeley, Stanford and any other rival for our <laughs> you know, yeah. pay to play model that we have. Um, but uh, I was there a teach despite your disdain towards school and authority. Did you have any professors or anyone that left an indelible mark on you that, you know, challenged your thinking and just got you fired up? Well, what what happened was uh, absolutely true. I, I, I picked up a hitchhiker, a beautiful uh, lady hitchhiker, fell insanely in love with her. I, I, I kidnapped her and have gave her two children. I've been married to her for now for 42 years. Uh, and she, her father was the chairman of the English department and uh, and a very powerful figure in the at, at the university, which is why suddenly my grades started to go up. And, and this guy, uh, Thomas Flanagan, uh, he became a, a famous novelist in his time. Uh, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy uh, when um, he, he just knew everything. He had read everything and he remembered everything he'd read. And he was just an absolute uh, genius. And at his house, I met the biggest academics in the country. And I, I traveled wow. through, I, I traveled through Ireland with uh, Seamus Heaney, who went on to win the Nobel prize. A, wow. You know, I met, I met all these great minds and these academic minds. And, and so that had a big effect on me. I suddenly realized like, I suddenly realized one, 
I knew nothing. I hadn't read anything. I'd been pretending to know things, and, and, I, and these people actually did know something. And two, I could know something. I could engage in conversation with these people uh, and not come off as a complete idiot. And so that was really that really gave me a key uh, into an intellectual world that I first first of all had disdain. I've been trained to disdain. My father had taught me to disdain it, uh, and, and that was the first thing. And secondly, uh, I was intimidated by it. I was kid, you know, I didn't think I could be smart like that. And I realized, no, I was actually uh, as bright as any of these guys. I just hadn't done the work that they had done. And so that was transformative. It, it genuinely was. Wow. So your, your story is akin to Rocky three when he, he <laughs> believes he can just take on Mr. T for being Rocky, but then realizes he can't and then trains and you win. You so, got to do that, that thing. And, and it came with the music too. I did the same music. That's true. It's, it's hard to read to Rocky though, because uh, going to fly now, it's, it's a, it's, it's tougher to yeah. kind of digest yeah. there. It's hard so, to read running up and down those steps. That is true. That is true. Now, so just for, just for the record here, I want to be on the record, Senator, that you did in fact kidnap your wife. You met your wife through hitchhiking and, and kidnapping is sort of depends on, it was, that was the prosecution's case, but yours was uh, assisted. There's a line between kidnapping and transporting and interstate commerce, right? <laughs> all I can tell you is that woman sat that, first of all, she was, my, my wife is still a beautiful, beautiful woman, but it, it, she was 19, I think, and she was a model level gorgeous, and she sat down in my car. I, I drove around the corner, to. I wasn't even in my car when I started hitchhiking. I ran to get in my car came out and I was in this Berkeley neighborhood with, that had a one-way grid and I went around a residential area at about 50 miles an hour almost killed an old woman woman unbelievably got to her before some other guy and rolled up and then casually said you know going my way you know you feel like, you feel like a this, this, I know it's going to sound to our younger listeners here inordinately creepy dangerous and complete but I mean it was all I know, those things yeah this is something your parents say and you kind of roll your eyes but like you know it was a different time like Pete did Pete was this a thing you just did like you would because like today you can't imagine this happening. People, won't, I have some people who won't get in the car with an Uber, like a background checked, you know, like car that's on a GPS that I can track where it's going. Uh, and it's like, so back then, was that just a thing you did? You would, you could hitchhike. There was more hitchhiking then, definitely, and certainly in Berkeley, with crazy people like my wife was at the time. Uh, they were they were doing these incredibly dangerous things. I always tell the story and say, "Let this be a lesson to you: never hitchhike because she she never gets away." You know, <laughs> there is the no one that the there is no one that got away with. <laughs> oh my no, god! No, the minute she sat down in the car, I thought, "Oh my lord, I, I've just fallen off the edge of the cliff." You know? So you, you, man, so you've been blessed with just uh, exposure. Uh, this makes it all the more, um, you know, disappointing that you've ended up how you have with such brilliant <laughs> people around you. Uh, this is really fascinating. And you actually, and I think maybe some people who've just labeled you as a, a right-wing nut job might not recognize that you actually, you began your career as a Sith Lord, actually, and not a Jedi, <laughs> right? You were some, I joke, of course. You were, you, but you can't, like, um, like uh, some other, like actually, I believe like Mr. Charles Krauthammer as well, that you were much more liberal. And then somehow during the Reagan rising tide, uh, you had a transformation and came to conservatism. Yeah. I mean, you know, the one thing, this is one of the reasons that I understand people on the left is that the one thing every leftist knows is that the right is evil. So you can be, you can say, well, I feel the left is wrong about this, is wrong about that, is wrong about this, this and the other thing. But the minute you say, well, maybe you should be a Republican, you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not evil. You know, I'm not, I'm not that bad. And so I, I was a very dissatisfied liberal. Uh, I hated all political correctness always. Uh, I remember being at the, I was on the campus radio, I was the news director of the campus radio station, and they started to have segments of the Asian hour and the black hour and all these different racial hours. And I was like, this is insane. You know, uh, the backy case where they established affirmative action. I thought, no, this is really bad. But I just knew Republicans were evil. And then what happened, two things happened. One was the Berlin Wall came down. And I looked at that and it's hard to convey to people who are younger how impossible that was. It was kind of like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, something you never, ever, ever thought was going to happen, except for Reagan. He was the only person who said it was going to happen. And I remember watching that, and I thought, that old buzzard was right about everything, you know? And then the second thing was that in the 90s, I left the country. I, I got sick of political correctness, and I went to London to live in London with my family for a year and stayed seven years. So I was taken out of American politics. 
and just didn't pay any attention to it. I paid attention to Clinton, you know, sleeping with Monica Lewinsky, but that was basically it. Everything else was Brit British politics, which I didn't care about, but was interested in. And when I returned, uh, I, I suddenly realized that all the people I agreed with were these evil Republicans. So I had heard about Rush Limbaugh, for instance, and how horrible he was, what a terrible guy he was. And I thought, well, I should listen to him to hear the devil, because the devil has got a radio show. I want to hear what he's doing. And I listened to him and I thought, no, I, I agree with this. You know, I actually think this guy is pretty funny uh, and entertaining, and he's saying a lot of smart things. And I would lurk on National Review, had a little segment called The uh, Corner online. Uh, where like Jonah Goldberg would talk with, you know, some other person else. And I used to call them my, my imaginary friends because they're the only people who were saying things that made any sense to me whatsoever. Uh, and, and I started to meet them. And that was how I started to realize that something had happened to me that I had shifted while I was away. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And when I started to hear the left say things like, you know, why do they hate us? I don't think because they're evil you know they're supposed to hate us they're they're evil you know like crazy people uh they should hate us and i realized the culture had just really soured and that was that was kind of the final you know link in the chain it's interesting too i know we had a massive economic boom in the 90s and it seems to correlate with your departure from the country um for seven seven years so <laughs> almost yeah. instantaneous yeah yeah <laughs> sort of sort of like uh the um uh the uh what's uh, um Gosh, the Jonah, the Jonah narrative, you know, we remove Andrew from the ship and suddenly, <laughs> you know, it's clear skies. Right? <laughs> yeah, all the way. Um, no, it's interesting because I, I, it, I guess I'd like to ask you because, you know, we are in such a it's funny when people say we're in the most polarized times ever. I go, well, not ever, because I haven't seen Oklahoma march into California yet for invade. But like it is it is really exhausting. And I know for a lot of people that I know, it's just. The temptation seems to be just put your hands in the air and say, you know what, I don't, I don't know what to do anymore. And it's also hard to know what is truth. Um, and I see this on, you know, because obviously if I have a political bias towards something, I'm immediately inclined to accept as gospel when I hear something confirm, you know, confirmation bias. And then multiple times I have found things that like, oh, like this is yesterday or today's misinformation is tomorrow's truth. And just it's but it's hard to know. And even with things like COVID, it was tough because I had really smart people telling me both things and it was and it was tough. So how do you go about just, you know, I think I, I've heard this complaint from a lot of people, which is like, I I'm just so exhausted with politics. And I also I don't even know what's true. I don't have trust in the mainstream media. I also don't have trust in the sort of you know, moralizing on the rights and sort of this, this kind of shame, you know, culture. And I don't I just don't know what to do anymore. You know, it's yeah, it's a it's a tough problem we have right now. Yeah, when the when the Daily Wire was starting, and I there I was, you know, much older than everybody I was working with, and they would say, "Oh, this is the most divided time in America," and I would be like, "Guys, we used to kill our presidents, you know, you, you know, you, you just yell at you. We we would assassinate our leaders, you know, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy. We just shot them, you know. So it's like it was it was a very divided time back then too, you know. Uh, but but the difference, and it's an essential difference, is that the the establishment is now radical. And that is the thing that is is really remarkable. And it's the thing that is damaging. It's, the, it's what's so damaging to the country. When, when I started at the Daily Wire, now it's maybe six, seven years ago, tops, I, I could essentially read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and feel that I had the facts and then take my position on those facts. That's no longer true. The New York Times is now worthless as a, a, a conveyor of information. The Wall Street Journal just doesn't have the same level of reporting power that the Times has. Uh, and so it's very, very difficult to just get to the point where you say this, these are the facts. So that's where all these conspiracy theories come from. You know, we don't it's hard to know. Was 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 the election stolen? I know people who are absolutely sure of it. I know people who are absolutely positive it didn't happen. It's really hard. And as you said, with COVID, uh, you know, I, I have no idea whether vaccinations were good or bad. I mean, I, I just the numbers seem to teach me that they kept people from dying, but they don't seem to have kept people from uh, getting the disease. And all. it's just really hard to get the basic facts. And the only thing that I the thing that I think about this, I believe it's a, I believe that is the crisis. We're in a crisis of information and it's the Internet. And the Internet is the biggest leap in information technology since the invention of the printing press. And that may be a, a 
cliched thing to say at this point, but it is simply absolutely true. And if you remember, and I actually personally remember, if you think back to the invention of the printing press, it was followed. <laughs> yeah, it was followed by by 300 years of, of religious warfare uh, that ripped Europe to pieces. And and it was, you know, when the Catholic Church was saying, no, 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 don't translate the Bible. We don't want anybody reading that. They weren't all wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were all wrong, but, they, but the idea that this was going to be a cataclysm was exactly right. And I think that that's what's happening now is the democratization of information and the what Samuel Coleridge used to call the clerisy, the chattering classes, the, the people who set opinions and set standards and set culture. Those people feel their power threatened and they're acting exactly like the Catholic Church in censoring, tormenting, and effectively burning at the stake anybody who says that their information is false. And so that's, that's what we're in. We're in an information war uh, that is in da dangerously close to becoming a real war at times. And so the, this weariness that people feel, I think has to be overcome. Uh, the country needs you uh, to do the work, to get the facts, and at least start to find out who is trying to tell the truth. You know, this is, this is the thing that bothers me. It bothers me on the right uh, even more than on the left. I mean, there are lots of people on the right who think everybody's lying. And oh, you know, you you made a mistake. You know, the other the other day, I had the wonderful uh, thriller writer Stephen Hunter on my show, and he writes these wonderful conservative sniper, uh, you know, suspense novels. And he had an opinion, and somebody wrote to me and said, "I disagree with that opinion. I'll never read his books." <laughs> well, wait, you know, that's that's you know, that's really tough. I mean, people uh, accuse Jeremy of. of you know, wielding the Daily Wire or some anti-Trump conspiracy, and and I was there, and that didn't happen. But but there was uh, differing opinions about whether to support Trump when he came up, uh, and and so when I what I'm trying to get to is people will say like uh, everybody lies, but not everybody lies. That's just not true. I mean, Ben Shapiro, you know, may be wrong, but he doesn't lie. I, I, I you know I've watched him for for years. I may be wrong, but I'm doing my damnedest to get at the truth. And so that's where you have to plant your flag. You have to plant your flag with the people of goodwill who are not trying to sell you anything. I mean, you know where I stand, you know what my opinions are, uh, but I'm not going to fool you. And if I get something wrong, I'm the first person to come out and just say, oh, yeah, I, I missed that. Um, the guys who are dangerous are the New York Times pretending to still be the New York Times. The New York Times is like that guy in Man in Black uh, who gets taken over by the alien and the alien walks around in a human suit. The uh, Edgar suit. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the New York Times. That's Yale University as well. They're they're not Yale anymore. They're not the New York Times anymore. They're leftism dressed up in the clothing of the New York Times. And those are the those are the people who are dangerous. Um, it's not the people who say this. It's not the Sean Hannitys of the world or the Tucker Carlson's who say this is my opinion or or Rachel Maddow. You know, I I, I always tell my friends I love that uh, MRC site. Uh, you know, Newsbusters. But I always tell them, don't pick on Rachel Maddow. She's an honest broker of left-wing opinion. You know, that's that's fair. I disagree with everything she says. But but she has an integrity. It's the people pretending that they're giving you the news uh, who are not, who are the danger. And so we shouldn't lose faith. We shouldn't lose faith in one another. Uh, we shouldn't lose faith in the people who are at least trying uh, to get it right. Uh, the, the real problem comes in from this bubble that the clerisy is in. Uh, where you'll hear them, for instance, use in a news story, they'll use a phrase like gender affirming care. And, uh, and I've written letters to, to reporters and to editors saying, you know, the issue at hand is whether or not this is gender affirming care or an atrocity. You know, when you when you butcher a child to change his sex, is that gender affirming care or is that an atrocity? And as long as that is up for debate, you don't use a term like gender affirming care as a descriptor because it's not it's bad English. It's not a descriptor uh, any more than you would say in a news story, the atrocity of, uh, of gender changing children. You know, you just describe it, and you say it. And so that's 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 because our, our clerisy is so corrupt and so uh, one sided. And we're in a little bit of, we're in a revolution. We're in an information revolution. What you're doing right this minute is part of that revolution. What the Daily Wire is doing is part of that revolution. Uh, and I'm very confident that we will move on to new evils and new uh, horrors, but that this moment of crisis will pass uh, and that information will work its way out where, that, where we have, uh, you know, different sources of information and more sources of information. That will be a good thing. It's already happening. So 
just for the record, you are not currently subscribed to the New York Times. <laughs> that- <laughs> I have my I have my work subscription to the New York Times. And I read it almost every day, uh, and it's laughable. I mean, it used to, you know, it was always a left-wing paper, but seriously, in the 1980s, it was a great paper. I mean, go back and look at it. Uh, the reporting power they had was unbelievable. And though they have committed many wrongs and done many and told many lies, back then, it was a great left-wing paper. Uh, now it's it's sophomoric. I mean, it's just like, it's like something you get in college, you know, like these, you know, the workers of the world unite, you know, they, they have this op-ed page. I call it knucklehead row, their op-ed page, where, uh, you know, a, a dissenting opinion would die of loneliness. You know, they have, they have Ross Douthat, you know, bringing the Catholicism, and he's excellent. I, I like Ross Douthat very much. Uh, but the rest of it is one panicky, hysterical old lady after another, which is an offense to old ladies. I've known some tough old ladies, but they just sound like, you know, these, they, they sound like these screeching women in a burning building, all of them. Uh, and uh, it's just ridiculous. It's just a bad, it's a bad newspaper. You know? Well, folks, um, we're going to go to a moment from our sponsor. So democracy dies in darkness. So be sure and get up your copy. <laughs> just, just kidding. Uh, democracy dies in darkness if we have anything to say about it. <laughs> um, well, we only have a few minutes left because um, I opened up the can of worms that was the, the culture war. But I do want to make sure we cover a few things here before um, the mothership returns to reclaim Andrew. Uh, first off, uh, you recently wrote a book, uh, a highly anticipated sequel to your thriller, Good Night Moon. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, tell us about that book. It looks, appears to be behind your right it's, ear. It's up there, yes. Yeah. Uh, the Truth and Beauty. Uh, it, it is a, a. Can we get a zoom in on it? Can we? Uh, can we get a pull it off the let's, shelf? Let's see. Can we, yeah. Oh, I was hoping the bookcase revolved around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, with the uh, lengthy subtitle, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. So help me, Ryan. I wrote this book. I thought, well, nobody, I'm never going to be able to publish this book. I'll have to publish it myself because it's such an odd idea. I'll never find it. There's only one editor in the country who would ever even think of, of buying it. And I know a lot of the editors. Um, but I, I have to write it. It is it is sent to me by by God, and I know I have to write this book. And so I wrote this book, which is basically about the fact that in uh, the 18th century in England and the uh, early 19th century in England, the Romantic movement was trying to rebuild the culture that had fallen apart in the revolutionary era that brought uh, the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And they were trying to rebuild the European culture. And that in doing so, they actually gave us a modern way to read the words of Jesus that don't change the words of Jesus, but just help them to see, to help us to see more clearly what in, in modern language, what it was exactly he was saying, because it's not that easy to tell, which is the premise of the book. It's hard to tell what Jesus is saying a lot of times, you know, when he says, you know, love your enemies and you say, well, first of all, why? And second of all, like, I don't even like my enemies. Why would I, why would I do that? You know, it's like, it sounds good. It sounds like, you know, something you should, moral, but when you start to think it through, you don't always really want to live like that. I mean, uh, you know, you sometimes think, well, I think it's the wrong thing to love my enemies. And so I found these, these, po- this poetry to be a way accidentally to be a way of understanding the truth of Christianity through the beauty of poetry, hence the title, which comes from John Keats, uh, The Truth and, and Beauty. Well, I, I finished the book. I sent it to the one editor I thought might buy it. He bought it instantly uh, with the full support of Zondervan, a Christian publishing house. He said to me, he didn't, he wouldn't, he's a very polite man, and he didn't quite come out and say, look, we're not going to sell any copies of this, but I believe in you. you know? <laughs> That's what he almost, he came right to the edge of saying that. Uh, the book was a USA Today bestseller. It's still selling very well. People have reacted to it, not just, I wrote it purposely for people who don't read poetry. You know, I didn't write it, so you had to know all the poems and all this stuff. Uh, but people have reacted to it with real emotion. If you go on and look at uh, the reviews um, on Amazon, it has really touched people and it has done exactly what I hoped it would do, uh, which is given them a, a fresh look at this ancient faith and, and the truth of it, which is so deep and so life transforming that if you turn it into a bunch of slogans, a bunch of, you know, uh, love your enemy pieties, you miss the fact that um, this incarnate word of God was actually giving you a revolutionary way to see the world every single day. 
And that's what it's trying to get at. It's trying to get at like, how can I wake up every morning and get just a little taste of that revolution in my life? Because it's such a, I mean, I, as I'm sure you know, it's such a joyful revolution to go through. Uh, and it's such a, a wonderful addition to life, an abundance of life. And so anyway, this is a, a, my way as a writer, as a, as a lover of poetry, as a lover of culture, uh, of trying to reinvigorate uh, the words of Christ for a new day. Uh, and again, it doesn't change anything that he said. He remains the same, but we change and our language changes and our outlook changes. And that's, so it speaks to that. Hmm. Let me ask you this. I, you know, one thing about faith that I, I find so, uh, particularly with the, the Christian faith, is so, uh, I don't know if I difficult to the word, but do you ever have days where you just go, okay, I read these, these the, I base my life on a book assembled over, you know, thousands of years and finally culminating in relatively recent history uh, that I, the teachings of a, of a wise rabbi out in the desert who allegedly walked on water, turned water into wine, raised people from the dead. And these these deeds were written down and then at best published 30 years later, 40 years later, and then a series of just sort of oddly profound yet also strikingly informal notes, uh, sort of like you know, greeting cards written to by a guy who was a, a Roman, you know, uh, a, a Roman Jewish, you know, persecutor or prosecutor uh, that suddenly converted. And just some days you read it and you go, this, this is, some of this is so profound, but some of this is just like, wow, this is, I get it. Any, it, this is crazy. Like this is, this yeah. is, this is really weird. And also there's just, and there's four accounts and they don't line up a hundred percent on everything. And so do you ever have days where you just go, huh? You know, what, I guess I, what I'm really drilling is like, what makes it real for you? Yeah, absolutely. And when I when I went through this conversion experience, which, as I say, was a deeply reluctant experience. Um, one of the things that I said to myself was my at my exit door, my my kind of insurance uh, policy was that if I loot, if I become less realistic, uh, I'm going to stop. If if what I'm saying does not describe the world that I see in front of me, I'm going to stop. And I, I, just a great example, just to, you know, when Game of Thrones came out and it was full of sex and violence, some Christian critics said they, were, they make, wrote the stories as Jesus never existed. And I thought, why? Because Jesus existed and then people stopped having sex and killing each other? What, you know, what are you talking about? That kind of pious idea that we're living in a world of happy endings, uh, that we're living in a world where, you know, God will make it all turn out okay uh, in this life. Uh, and we obviously do not. I mean, in fact, when you read the Gospels, it, Jesus keeps saying, you know, these, like these people who say we're going to make the, Christianity should make the world a better place. And Jesus kept saying, no, forget that. The world's never going to be a better place. You are going to have life in abundance. That's different uh, than saying the world is going to improve. And so I, I said that to myself as I converted. And in fact, I found that my conversion made me deeply more realistic. Uh, my belief in the um, in, in that level that I call, that I, many of us call the supernatural, which is that level of meaning. Uh, when you uh, kill a child, you've created, you've done something that's evil, right? It's not evil if we're just flesh and blood and nothing. It's not, you know, it's just, then it's just one animal killing another animal. What's evil about it? What's evil is that level of meaning, that supernatural level of meaning. And having come to faith in that, come, having come to believe in that, I've become much more realistic about human beings, much more compassionate uh, toward the brokenness of all of us. And, uh, and, and that is the thing that keeps me coming back because I do have days, especially I write about this in the book. I write about the fact that I, I don't actually because I was uh, uh, 49 when I converted, I had thought about everything. I had gone down every wrong road you can go down. So I, I'm pretty sure I got it right. I don't have, I don't have philosophical doubts uh, ever, really. But, but I do occasionally look at the miracles and think, really, did that really, you know, did that really happen? And I write about the miracles uh, and my faith in them and my, my belief in them and, and why that belief is sustained. But but sure, you know, it's so easy. The flesh is so here. Matter is so real. And the supernatural meaning of things seems so contingent uh, that it, it's easy to lose your grasp on the only thing that's real, which is the supernatural meaning of things, and fall into the one thing that comes and goes, which is the flesh and, and matter. Uh, it's very easy to do. The world is obviously constructed so that you have to climb that mountain. Um, and I think that because climbing that mountain gives you wisdom, 
because it gives you compassion, because above all, it gives you joy, uh, which I don't mean happiness, you know, that, that's silly. I mean, what I mean by joy is um, vigor, uh, the, the idea that life really matters and is really worth doing and it's really uh, a, a miraculous thing because it gives you all those things. I think that's the confirmation that you get. And the fact that when you live in the flesh, when you live in, in the matter, world of matter without believing in Christ, um, you wind up, you know, twerking in front of the Supreme Court for the right to kill your baby and looking very much like, uh, you know, some kind of cartoon demon uh, from a bad Christian comic book. Uh, you know, so I think that that's the proof. That's the proof you get what, what happens to your life, that abundance of life that you get. And that's my answer, you know, to the doubts. So I read a quote this morning uh, from a pastor who's talking about Pascal, and he said that, you know, independent of the, you know, your uh, the gamble was the idea that, to the first step would actually not even be assessing Christianity's merits, but asking, is it something you want to be true? Do you want to, sh does this, is this truth worthy of being true? Like, is this something that we would want it to want it to be true? And only then if that's true, would the truth actually make itself known, uh, known to us. And I thought, I'd never thought about it that way. And I thought, yeah, it's like, we should all want it to be true. We should all, I, I am so excited that the possibility that this is not all there is uh because uh, otherwise i mean it's just yeah you know, this is this is rough world you is know, and what and life's great right now i always do you ever think just how like miserable life must have been for just eons of of humans i i sometimes find myself going like the dark age i just go back like i was like you know it was before all this like it was it must have been awful you know? Yeah, no, and still is in many, many places. Uh, you know, one of the stepping stones in my conversion, uh, I went through a period, I was mostly, you know, I was a functional atheist all the time, but I would have called myself an agnostic. Uh, but but I became an atheist for a period of time. And during that time, read a lot of atheist books, you know, all the all the postmodernists and all the materialists and all this stuff. And none of them made any sense to me. I thought these guys are not speaking honestly. And then I read the Marquis de Sade. Uh, the guy we get sadism, the word sadism from, uh, who basically said there is no God, so we should torture women because that's a lot of fun uh, and kill people because that's kind of fun and just exert our power because there's it. And I thought this is the only atheist I've ever read whose logic is absolutely consistent. He is the, he, you know, he, people in the movies, they always show him as this kind of naughty little fellow as if he was chasing his girlfriends around with a wet towel, you know, and flicking them in the backside. No, he was a psychopath killer you know, who believed that psychopathic killing was the right thing to do because there was no God. And I thought this makes sense. And this is clearly hell. I mean, this is clearly hell on earth. And I just thought, you know, if, if I can at least not believe in this, uh, I will, that's what I will do. And that, that really turned, that was like the wall I hit where I just, that's the only leap of faith I ever took. The only leap of faith I ever took was that, no, it really is better not to rape someone to death than to rape someone to death. That's, that's my, that's the basis. That's the illogical uh, kind of basis of my faith. Uh, that's it. That's the only one that it's better to be, give a child, a hungry child, a piece of bread uh, than to shoot a man lying in the street. You know, that's, that, that's, that's, that is the, my leap of faith, that there is something good and bad. There are actions that are bad and actions that are good. And that's the, that's what Saad realized was not true if there was no God. And he lived his life that well, that's a campaign slogan if I ever heard one, which is "Give bread to children, don't shoot people in the street." My name's Andrew Clavin, and I approve. Vote this. for me. I approve the message. Well, we got to get you out of here. So, quick lightning TikTok round here. If you can answer these two questions uh, and not plead the fifth. Um, first off, um, any uh, what are some of Andrews as a prolific reader? Uh, what are some books that you say everyone should read these before they pass on to the next iteration of life? Uh, everyone should at least see some Shakespeare plays and yeah. read the great tragedies that uh, Shakespeare wrote. Uh, I, I would recommend that everybody read um, the one difficult book I would recommend that everybody read is uh, Crime and Punishment. Uh, by Dostoevsky, because I think it is the reputation of all the nonsense that's coming out here. And it's just a, a, an irrefutable reputation of it. Uh, yeah, there's so many great books to read. Uh, you know, you should you should read the Bible. You should at least read the Gospels. Uh, and not not because I don't say that as a preacher, uh, as a preachment. I say it because it shaped everything you think and everything you see. And so you might as well know where that comes from. And if you don't, you're actually living in ignorance about who you are as a Westerner. Um, and uh, there's, there's so much wonderful stuff to read, um, you know, 
if you haven't read uh, Dickens, if you haven't read, um, you know, a book that I think everybody should read because I actually think there, were, there came a point when literature, as it, as all arts do as they get old, split in two. Uh, and one became a kind of intellectual literature like Ulysses and uh, the modernists and all this. And then a couple of lonely sailors kept sailing in the old tradition, and one of them was Somerset Maugham. And he wrote a book called The Razor's Edge. And if you have not read The Razor's Edge, I believe it is just as great as Ulysses, but in a different tradition, uh, an older tradition. There's so many books that I can't even begin. I know. We'll, have to, I say, we'll, we'll get a, we'll get a list of you. Read Shakespeare and, and the guy, if you haven't read Shakespeare in the Gospels, you don't know who you are. That's what I would say. That's great. And last thing, uh, Andrew, um, you've written so much. How do you, what is your writing process? How do you, do you just, are you disciplined? Are you just prolific? Are you getting, you know, revelations from sort of, you know, spiritual beings on high? Uh, how are you able to crank out? I think I saw something like 30 or 40 different books on there. How do you do it? I am extraordinarily disciplined because I'm a very slow writer. I'm not, you know, oh, I mean, really? I'm okay. if, if I could, if I could write at the speed of Ben Shapiro, I would have a hundred million books because I am uh, nothing if not disciplined. You know, when I was a kid, uh, the, the people who turned me on to literature when I was a kid were the tough guy writer, the American tough guy writers, among them Raymond Chandler, who wrote the Philip Marlowe detective stories. And I just loved he, Philip Marlowe was who I wanted to be. That was, he was my male role model in life. And he, I just read everything by, uh, Chandler. And there was a book called, I think, Raymond Chandler Speaking or something like that, which was his letters and and uh, kind of a casual remarks. And it won, in one of those letters, and remember, I'm a teenager at this point, in one of those letters, he said, you should, you should have four hours a day during which you do nothing else but write. You can stand on your head, you can sit and stare, but you can't do anything else but write. You know, you can't do anything else productive but write. And I took that advice on and I wrote my first novel when I was 14 years old and I went through all of college. Sometimes I was working four hours from three in the morning till seven in the morning, but I just stuck to that and it became second nature to me. You know, now, now I can cheat a little bit if I, you know, if I get very busy or something like that, but I'm still basically on that schedule uh, four hours a day. I, I sit down and if you do that, if in four, you know, one page is 300 to 350 words. If you write for four hours, you're going to write at least one page. Uh, even a slow writer like me is going to probably write three or four pages. Uh, that's a book. At the end of a year, that's a book. So if you live long enough, you'll get your 30 books. All right. Well, you heard it. Four hours. That's a very is interesting. I, I see why everyone's so prolific back then before the advent of Instagram and social media. <laughs> so that's that's we've been robbed of those four hours. So, well, that's that's all. Andrew, thank you so much. I know we are well past your stated uh, deadline, but um, I so appreciate your uh, insights and just sharing your story with us. Um, this is far better than Jeremy led me to believe it would be. So thank you. <laughs> I know you, you have to say it's far better than Jeremy. That's what I want to hear. I want to... <laughs> that's that's true. I don't like to pick sides or anything, but um, for more of Andrew's thoughts on the New York Times, you can visit him, right? At Andrew Clavin, New York Times Love Fest collab.com backslash discount. <laughs> uh, Andrew, anything else? Uh, people can get pick up the book now, obviously. And uh, your show is uh, as once a week, right? Uh, the... It's on Fridays in the Daily Wire, but you can get it anytime you want uh, on Apple Podcasts. And uh, I, I would love it if you'd come by. I think the show, I'm really pleased with the show now that it's once a week. I got a little tired of four days a week, but once a week, it's really uh, good quality material. So I hope people will come by and listen. Well, I've been saying that for years. I was saying that at one out of four, Andrew Clavitz is fantastic. So <laughs> I'm, glad that, I'm glad the management finally caught on to what we're going there. So, well, Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. And uh, folks, thanks for camping with us. We'll see if we don't get canceled. Thanks for joining us, folks. If you want to help us out, and we're confident you do, go ahead and hit that subscribe button here on our YouTube channel. And if you ever feel like just listening to these, you can check us out on all major podcast streaming.